Podcast. The Gospel According to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Welcome you back to your seats. Let's get started. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to pick up at verse 5, but never before we ask the Lord for his help. Let's do that with a word of prayer now. Now, Father God, we ask you that by your spirit you would quiet our hearts with your love. Give us that peace that passes understanding and Clear the deck, as it were, in our hearts and our minds so that we have room to hear what the Spirit is saying to our hearts and lives. God, you have ordained our footsteps to be here in this very moment to hear the word of the Lord for our edification, our comfort, our wisdom. Many of us are facing issues that you will have an answer for in today's word. So give us ears that can hear, eyes that can see, and a heart that can understand in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. You know, when someone is sick and suffering, there's pain on the part of the one afflicted, of course, but there's also pain on the part of the ones who love that person, who have to uh, watch as their loved one uh, suffers. They feel helpless, you know. They try to comfort and encourage in any way that they can. It's been said that the emotional pain of the sympathizer sometimes rivals the physical pain of the one suffering. And in that great sympathy, there's nothing that we wouldn't do to alleviate the suffering of a loved one. And that seems to be exactly what's going on here in Matthew chapter 8 with now a second miracle of healing that uh, Matthew records here. We're going to take a closer look at this this morning. An important but an unlikely character approaches Jesus with an urgent request. He has a heavy heart because he has a household servant who's in dire straits. He's critically ill and suffering terribly. And so this man comes to Jesus on behalf of his suffering servant. And the story, as uh, simple as it is, really has some surprising twists and turns that have direct implications and applications for our Christian lives from start to finish. And along with some concluding remarks that Jesus makes about the encounter that will blow the minds of those who are listening to him that day in the crowd. And so let's meet this sympathizer and get started with his urgent request there in verses 5 of Matthew 8. 
when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and is, is in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. And so like I said, it starts out pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Until you take a closer look at who's doing the asking, a few striking things considering first century Judaism and life there in Capernaum, Capernaum now on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus will do most of his teaching and his uh, ministry there. And here comes this urgent request from a most unlikely fellow from a Gentile and a Roman centurion. A centurion is a captain over a hundred men. And so he's important in the army there. And what a strange sight it would be for this Roman oppressor of the people uh, coming to the Jewish Messiah on Jewish turf there. Israel is occupied and that's why he's there, right? Israel is not officially Israel because 500 years earlier, uh, the Babylonians came in to finish up what the Assyrians started and uh, took Israel down, destroyed the temple, and really uh, led them into captivity. And from that point, 500 years earlier, until 1949, 48, I should say, they were not officially the nation of Israel. They were occupied. So it started with the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians led to the Persian Empire, and then the Persian Empire gave way to the Greek Empire, and the Greek Empire gave way to the Romans. And at that time, then, thence, you have the Roman centurion who is there to represent Caesar and Roman law and to have the thumb of Caesar over the... Jewish people to make sure that Rome's laws and customs were obeyed. And so that is why the reason uh, most Jews had disdain in their hearts for, first of all, Gentiles, let alone somebody they're representing, pagan Rome. And so, but as far as centurions go, as a bunch, there are seven different centurions mentioned in the Bible, in the Gospels, and in the book of Acts. And all seven uh, are mentioned in a favorable light. So they're decent military men who know right from wrong and are disciplined men, and they have integrity, or so it seems in the Bible. G. Campbell Morgan, who wrote a book about them, concluded with this quote. He said, in all of these seven centurions, there is something to admire. In some of them, much to admire. And in one of them, everything to admire. That would be the centurion who said, surely this was the son of God. And so, yes, admirable, that is, if you're a first century Israelite, for sure, because by and large, most Jewish people, as I've been saying, had disdain in their hearts for A, Gentiles, because they saw them as outside the covenant, and they did detestable things like bow down to uh, images made of rock, wood, and metals, and in the shape of serpents and animals, and worship them, and did uh, unspeakable 
uh, immorality. And so they had nothing but hatred for this Roman rule and those who enforced it. And so they mistakenly thought that God had the same feelings, even though the Old Testament really takes pains to show that God is for the whole world and that he had plans to save the Gentiles, which means the word is nations. That's all that word means. And so the bad boy is next in line for a miracle, second unlikely character here in chapter 8. Uh, uh, but Matthew is really, by the power of the Holy Spirit, trying to make a point in putting three miracles of the ten that now come, uh, prioritizing them right up front. And so in Math Matthew chapter 8, we have one, two, and three that are all screaming this message, and I hope you don't miss it. Uh, it's worth reminding you, the first miracle last week we talked about it was a leper who was, quote-unquote, a God-forsaken soul, the outcast who turns out to be not so God-forsaken after all. He turns out to be God-loved and the favor of God. And Jesus touches him with compassion and cleanses him. And then the next miracle is not an outcast, but an outsider, our man here, the centurion. He's an outsider, right? He's a God-forsaken Gentile, a law enforcer of God-forsaken Rome, the oppressive regime, pagan at that, who turns out to be not God-forsaken at all, that this foreigner, this outsider, is, 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 is God-accepted, God-loved, God-blessed. And he turns to Jesus with a heavy heart, and Jesus is going to hear him and give him his request. And then we close out uh, the chapter next week. We'll, it will include a woman who gets what she needs, who was considered a second-class citizen back in ancient days there, assigned a lesser value. Spoiler alert, she gets what she needs from God's only begotten son. And so this is the message. The message is God is for the underdog. God loves the people we hate. God leaves the door open for those we close the doors to. And this is it. He, he includes the one society deems insignificant, unlovely, unworthy, or a lost cause. Truly, the only ones God ever forsakes are those who forsake him. And boy, does Jesus drive this point home in a most shocking and stinging way to an audience who's fond of excluding the outsiders from all hope, as we'll see. So here he comes. He comes up. He steps up. This is kind of what he might look like with his uh, little outfit on. Now, let me show you a picture of him. So, you know, he walks up to Jesus, the Jews' Messiah. And you know there are boos and hisses and catcalls. They hate him. And all that he's... And if Jesus was any kind of Messiah at all, he would not be receiving this Gentile oppressor into a welcome arms, listening to his heavy heart and giving him what he's looking for. You can go back to the verses here. The verse 5 says he's asking 
It's kind of a weak translation. He's more entreating or pleading. And uh, John Calvin says this about this man. Um, He says his confident approach to Jesus and his steadfast faith may suggest that before Christ healed his servant, he himself had been healed by the Lord. And so I think that's a really intriguing idea. It may have uh, some truth to it. And if, if so, here's what the Roman centurion's thinking. His heart's been touched. Jesus has ministered to him in some way. He's thinking, how can I live with myself having been touched by Christ and God's power and then not go to God on behalf of others in my life who I love, who have the same desperate need? And so one writer said, proof that the Spirit of God has really touched you in a saving way is when your own heart desires that others be set free in the same way. Will you keep the cure to yourself? If you keep the cure to yourself, I would question whether or not you truly are cured. Now, the one who is suffering is called his servant, but it's a word that can mean servant or boy. And so the two meaning, the word really describes somebody who is a favorite or who is loved like a son. So there's this great tender uh, nuance in the word that he really loves this young man who has served his household, which is very unusual. It's very unusual. Roman masters might just as easily turn a sick slave who has become useless. Some of them were seen as tools, right? You got a tool that doesn't work. What do you do? Turn it out, throw it in the junkyard, you know? So writers say that this was the usual way, not only turning them to the street, but worse, taking them out back and putting an end to his misery. But not this man. This warrior has a heart that's been touched by God and it's got compassion and he wants Jesus, who he's going to call Lord twice, to take care of somebody he loves. And now one writer said, you can be sure that this young servant must have distinguished himself to win the centurion's heart because of this unusual love he has for this young man. And he did that through his conscientious service, his loyalty, his heartfelt care of the centurion's family. In other words, a shout out to this servant who appears in Matthew chapter 8, probably because he wasn't irresponsible. He wasn't a troublemaker. He didn't go about the the master's uh, service begrudgingly. He wasn't irresponsible. You know what? This centurion didn't catch him out behind the shed. Getting drunk and talking smack about the guy's family that he's serving. Oh, no, no, no. The reason he's in Matthew 8 is because his good behavior endeared him in such a way to a guy who was so touched and so moved that somebody like him, who's important to him, was suffering that he would go to the extent of going to the Jewish Messiah to make intercession on his behalf. One writer said, if you want to be valued and near and dear to people's hearts, be a blessing. 
Not a bother. Not a bother. So his servant is suffering and is brought out in Greek really well. He, says, he lies at home bedridden, right? To, the word for lie there is to be cast down, to be seized and knocked to the ground. So he's really thrown down by this terrible thing that has immobilized him, paralyzed him, causing him great suffering. Uh, writers were saying uh, maybe he has tetanus. You know, things, you get your tetanus shot, yeah, no problem. You got tetanus back then, you got paralyzed, and you slowly died. Rheumatic fever, you'd get paralyzed, you slowly stop breathing in terrible agony. All of these diseases that we pop a pill and we're fine. Oh no, it took their lives in slow and painful ways to touch this guy's heart to see somebody of this kid's character. This guy's character suffering like that. Now, the two words terrible suffering uh, have a nuance of fearful and frightening and then the word suffering, tortured or tormented. This broke this warrior's heart to watch that he's come to put a request before Christ and he has faith that Jesus is the answer, right? And what faith that he does have. Wow. So Jesus agrees quickly, as you see in your text. He says, I will go and heal him. But the centurion has another idea. Verse 8. The centurion replies when Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. Oh, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. All right, get how it works. I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, he goes. I tell one, come, he comes. I say to my servant, do this, he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished, the son of God, astonished, and said to those following, I tell you the truth, I haven't found anyone in Israel with this kind of faith. And he calls on the Roman oppressor, pagan, Gentile man, and says, bingo, 10 stars. You outshine everybody I know in Israel. Your faith is number one. Wow. Well, that's pretty good. When Jesus is astonished, uh, you know you've knocked it out of the park. Amen? So Jesus makes an offer here. Point two, commendable faith. He makes an offer, and the captain counters with this amazing display of faith and humility. And the, it's the faith that Jesus wants to underscore here. So what's going on here? He's obviously uncomfortable with what Jesus has suggested, that Jesus, who he calls Lord twice, he knows who he is. Now, he's a sinner. Anybody dealing with the Son of God just knows who they are without the grace of God. And then to acknowledge Lord equals God. He's using the God word. God. He's uncomfortable putting the Lord through the effort of traipsing down those narrow alleyways, down finding his house, up 
the pathway, into the house, through the family room, into the back bedroom with gawking neighbors who might assume in his humble heart that God's doing this because, and Jesus is being moved because of the importance of me. Look at my uniform, look who I am. Aren't I worthy of this kind of attention from the Jewish Messiah who we know as Lord? And he doesn't want that to happen. One writer said, when a soul has been touched by the spirit of the Lord, God's glory is what matters most. More glory to Christ, less glory to me is the believer's motto. The last thing this humble man wants is to make a spectacle of himself. And so he's saying in essence, listen, I know who you are. You're the Lord. I'm a sinner. <laughs> I don't deserve this kind of treatment. Door, door to door service from the son of God for me. Are you kidding me? He says, I'm not worthy to have you in my home. I don't want to trouble you. And what you don't realize is that the Jews of the day considered going through the doorposts of a Gentile's home to make you spiritually unclean. It didn't say that in the Bible, but the rabbis taught that you want to keep your distance or else you're going to get spiritual cooties. All right. And that's exactly what they were doing. The Roman centurion knows he's a Gentile. He knows what the Jews think. He lives there, right? And so when Jesus says, I'm going to come through your doorposts as the Jewish Messiah, Lord, he's like, oh, I want to save you all that awkwardness. I don't want to add to the hostility, the wagging of the tongues, uh, the controversy heaped already on you. Let's spare you because, Jesus, isn't it really unnecessary anyway? Isn't it unnecessary? Do you have to really make, if you're Lord, do you really have to come and go through the house? And where is he? Oh, there he is. Oh, let me take my hand and say the right words. No, Jesus, just say it. Bat an eyelash. Think the thought. Just say one word, bam, boom. But it's his explanation of why he believes that that causes Jesus to be wowed. And as he explains himself there in verse 9, you can hear the crack of the bat, the ball soaring into the sky while the crowds of heaven cheer this guy. Let's uh, take a look at that. I'll paraphrase it for you. He says, Lord... Just say the word. I get it. I, I, I myself, when he says I myself, it puts it in the emphatic, which means he's saying, even I, even I have authority vested in me from Rome, and I have soldiers under me. So whenever I give orders, go, come, do this, do that, it gets done. I don't have to be in the room. I don't have to be nearby. I don't have to be present. I can issue the command and... The power of Rome from Caesar's throne flows through my command, and it gets done. Now, if I am a man who's yielded to the power of Rome and represent Rome, and things get done at my word, how much more you, the Lord, who has authority over life and death, and represent God by your yielded life as the Son? When you give an order, the power of God will flow through you. And by your word, your word is the agent of healing. 
say the word, and done and done. Let's do this a lot easier. Let's do it in a more discreet way. Lord, I've got the faith. Just say it. And Jesus steps back and goes, what? Wow. I've never seen anything like this. Roman, pagan, centurion, oppressor, God-forsaken fuels for the fires of hell, the Jewish people used to say of Gentiles. And he's a hero, and God lifts him up and exalts him over the faith of Peter, James, and John, who still, they get in a boat, the winds come, the, there's a storm. The Lord, the Lord is on the boat, and they wake him up and say, don't you care that we're drowning? The Lord is on the boat. He's already done amazing God-only miracles. And Jesus has to point out to Peter, James, and John, your faith is scary. It's this big. Oh, you of tiny, tiny faith. Oh, we're all going to die. Sorry, I'm sure you didn't do that. <laughs> I would have. <laughs> he says, this pagan that you all hate and booed when he came up here. He's a hero. And he puts, if he was in Louisiana, he would have said, puts y'all faith to shame. Look at this. Why is it amazing? He didn't grow up in Sabbath school. He doesn't know what a Bible is. He doesn't know who Adam is. He doesn't know the God of heaven and earth who spoke and, and in six days created everything. He doesn't know Isaiah and Ezekiel or Daniel. He's never sung a psalm. He's never been to church a day in his life, temple service. He was raised rather on Zeus and Aphrodite and Apollo and all of that nonsense. And he was raised in Romans chapter one kind of world where the immorality goes on for 25 verses. That's the kind of world. And what kind of guy is he? He didn't take philosophy and theology in school. He took martial arts. And he's got 20 ways to kill a man without using a weapon. And this is the guy that says, you are the Lord. I heard the gospel. I saw what you did. Boom. You're God's man. Lord, just say a word. And it's done. That's an amazing thing. And Jesus says, wow. And the word used to describe Jesus' reaction is intense. Thaumanzo in the Greek. It means to have the wind knocked out of you, to be stunned in wonder, to marvel in amazement, to stand in awe. The son of God. Breathless. What? Wow. <laughs> that in itself makes us amazed. It's the same word the disciples use on the boat when Jesus stands up, when they're screaming like little babies, and the Lord stands up and says, what you guys afraid of? Listen up. Shh. Quiet down storm, and everything goes whoosh. And the boat's like this. And it says, who is this that speaks to the wind and the waves? And they obey, and they were Domazo. That's intense. And it's used to describe Jesus at a reaction of a human being 
who just has instant faith and takes Jesus at his word. Jesus is stunned twice in the Bible, once here and once in a bad way. In Nazareth, where he spent from kindergarten, the God-man, from five years old to, to 30, he grew up, God in a body, rubbing shoulders 24-7 with the people of Nazareth. And one day he stands up when he's 30 to people who know him like nobody else in the whole world. And he says, I'm going to read from Isaiah. I just want you to know that today these words are fulfilled. It's me. They want to kill him. They take him and they try to throw him off the cliff there in Nazareth. And there is a cliff in Nazareth. There's only one cliff in Nazareth. That's the place. And Jesus, and it says, and Jesus was thomazo, stunned. How can you live with the light of the world for 25 years and then want to snuff the light out? Jesus was stunned. Now, I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice to amaze the Lord? I think we can do it still. I think he gets amazed. Uh, Somebody was telling me about the martyrs back in the Middle Ages. They would go to their death singing and leading their executioners to the Lord. You don't think Jesus went, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. When we obey against our natural inclination, when every cell in your body is, say it, strike back, do it, and you say, for the grace of God and because I love God. How could I do that to God? No. You don't think Jesus goes, whoa, look at that kid of mine. When you get aggressed and insulted and you overlook it, like the Bible says, to your glory. When you go the extra mile, when you turn the other cheek, when you pray for those who persecute you, they persecute you and you say, you know what? You know how I'm going to respond? Lord, bless them. Open their eyes. Don't let them perish. God goes, that's amazing. You know what else could be amazing in a sad way? That somebody he would take out a sin, reveal himself to their hearts, pour his love and his Holy Spirit in them and raise them to new life. They're aware. They're born again. They know the great and precious promises of God. They've heard the voice of the living most high God. Their lives have been changed and yet they get consumed in discontent or in mean-spiritedness or self-absorbed or go back into the sins that Jesus died to free them from. I think that's a head-scratcher for the angels and probably the Lord going like, what? Wait a second. (laughs) Not you guys. You wouldn't do that, right? After what I've done for you. Wow. Yeah. So I want to amaze Jesus in all the right ways and put a smile on his face. I don't think I've always done that. And... um, I want to, as a church, be a place where God says, that's an amazing faith. 
a church that has amazing faith. And because of that, the faith is amazing to him. And so Jesus is going to commend him publicly, which he does here in your verse. And now he concludes with a shocking observation that this Gentile kind of uh, prompts him. He sees this Gentile coming to faith in the presence of all the Jews who are having a struggle with their faith. And he sees that this Gentile is kind of a harbinger, uh, a forerunner of the Gentiles who, who uh, you know, the dark horse in the race is going to win the race while the one that everybody said is a shoo-in is going to lose out. And sometimes that's the way it is, and Jesus will say that now as we conclude with these verses. Verse 11, I say to you that many like this Roman pagan Gentile who you all excluded, many like him will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, all over the world, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb the kingdom of heaven. But the so-called subjects of the kingdom, those you would expect who have the most advantage and knowledge, will be thrown outside if they don't have faith into darkness. And now he's going to describe perishing hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done as you believed it would, and his servant was healed at that very hour. So let's look at this. We have now the commendation of faith giving way to a shocking observation, a striking revelation from God's only begotten son. And he says, listen, folks, there's going to be, he's standing there and everybody's like, what are you even talking to him for? Oh, there's going to be some surprises in Heaven, he says, there'll be people you thought that would be there who are not, and there are going to be people you thought would never be there who are sitting at the table. Exhibit A, pagan Roman Gentile oppressor here who has had a change of heart. Whosoever, he's a whosoever. He heard and he believed. And Jesus says, I don't, it doesn't matter what your packaging is. You have a heart that believes. And so the Jewish crowds are not assuming that he's a hero of the faith and will be seated next to their heroes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what's the sticking point with this Jewish uh, audience? Well, we've said many times, because it resurfaces over and over again, their mistaken notion that Israel's Messiah was for Israel only. Uh, he came for Israel, but he also told them, I don't know, 50, 75 times in the Old Testament that he's coming for the whole world, that Israel's God and Messiah and Savior was the Savior of the world. The, world, the word Gentile just means nations. And in Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 25, chapter 45, chapter 59, chapter 60, in Micah 4 and Zechariah 8 and Matthew 1, Malachi, I should say, chapter 1, just to name a few, places where he says Israel is a light to the world that the ends of the world might be saved. For God so loved the world, right? And so 
it makes sense that many will come because it's not based on being a religious person or being a Jewish person or being related to Abraham. You had to have the faith that Abraham had. And if you have that kind of faith, that will save you whether you're from the east or the west, the north or the south. Good boy, bad boy, doesn't matter. That's why many will come because it's so, so easy. Not based on being good, but on being saved and having faith. So, uh, yeah, many will come. Let me read this. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, and he's looking in heaven, John is, and he says, There before me was a great multitude that no one can count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. So quit with your narrow ideas of who can get saved. Anyone can get saved. And apparently, the few that find the narrow path add up. After 6,000 years, uh, the description is countless. You cannot count them. So let's look at this and make some deductions about this heaven to which we are headed. Number one, like I said, there's many there. Don't picture, you know, sparse, you know, with empty chairs around. (laughs) Paradise is packed. That's what the Bible says. Number two, there's community there. They sit together. We sit with people that we recognize, know, and love. Here's Charles Spurgeon here. But you will hear the voices, Charles Spurgeon quote, you will hear the voices of those you loved again. Yes, you will hear those voices once more. You will come to know those you loved had been loved by God. Would not heaven be a dreary place if we couldn't recognize one another? I would not care to go to such a heaven as that. I believe that heaven is a fellowship of believers and that we shall know one another there. Charles Spurgeon. Of course we know each other there. Of course that's part of the joy, right? Of those who are redeemed sharing together at what is now number three, a feast. Jesus likes to call heaven a glorified party. A feast was like the holiday, the singing, the dancing, the rejoicing, the biggest extravagant eating, the joy of fellowship together. That's what Jesus says. And in Matthew chapter 22, he describes heaven as God throwing a party for his son. He invites the world, the good, the bad, the ugly. But many make lame excuses. You know the parable. Oh, I just got too much work to do. Or I've got family struggles. Or I just got married. And there's a list of things that people say that they trade a place in heaven for some temporal, earthly thing. That's an important thing. But it's temporal. It shouldn't get in the way of eternal Life And so happily, some RSVP, and, uh, but they aren't the ones Jesus is saying here that were voted most likely to be seen in heaven. So the former murderers, the drug lords, the terrorists, the poverty-stricken nobodies, the outcasts, the former Muslims, former Buddhists, former Hindus, all the people that you think, ah, no way. You know, the guy with the sign that every time you pass him, you have to say, probably makes more than me. Um, you know, 
You don't know. You don't know. And I don't know. Don't be so quick. Because we might be shining some shoes in heaven of some people that we've been telling, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... These folks have heard the gospel. They believe they're whosoever. I told you about, I was standing in line at Mary's uh, waiting for a table and I saw some Jehovah's Witnesses in line next to me. And I said, oh, you went to church today? She goes, well, we don't call it church. And I said, oh, yeah. She goes, well, what church do you go to? And I said, I go to the church of whosoever. And she said, I've never heard of that, whosoever. And I said, yeah, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I go to the church of whosoever believes. Well, she didn't like it as much as you didn't like it. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Be that way. Uh, yeah, so whosoever, you know, whether you hold a sign and you're a loser God leaves the light on just in case. You've got a last minute change of heart, you're in. Thief on a cross, today you'll be in paradise with me. I think you get the point. So the churchgoers and the seemingly born into right relationship, you know, decent, good person, a Sadducee, a Pharisee, a rabbi, a pastor, kids brought up in the Christian church, oh, you better have saving faith because if you've got a hard heart, reject the Messiah, it doesn't matter. The outing, outer trappings that say, oh, you should be a shoe-in. Of course he's going to be there. Mm -hmm. Got to have saving faith in the heart. Sometimes only God knows who that is, I think, most of the time. Amen. And so now Jesus describes perishing in very graphic terms. I have a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Let's take a look at that. We see that Jesus was unafraid to speak of hell with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and all of that. And in fact, he talked about hell more than anybody else in the entire Bible. There are some ministers who never mention anything about hell, I heard, Charles speaking, I heard of a minister who once said to his congregation, if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be sent to that place which is not polite to mention. <laughs> he ought, and then Charles says, listen to Charles, he ought not to have been ever allowed to preach again if he cannot use the simple, plain words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just thought that was so cool that it comes from a sermon from 1878 there on this very passage. Isn't that crazy? And so, yeah, you know what? When Jesus starts talking about a place he nicknames Gehenna, which we call hell, uh, which he nicknamed it sort of for the town garbage dump there in Jerusalem. It had uh, smoldering fires that never went out and other terrible, nasty things. And um, he said that's a nice description of uh, where souls go that don't come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved, who will willfully reject uh, the payment for 
their sins. And a lot of progressives out there love to say, you know, sir, you know, I'll just stick with Jesus' words when I'm sharing the gospel. I'll just stick with Jesus' words. Okay, let me bring some of them out to you. And he talks about outer darkness there. Well, I'm going to use plain words. They're short, but not sweet, but true. Whenever a preacher has on the screen words not his own, but of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you claim to believe as your Lord and Savior. It is his word that the pastor is saying. He's not making stuff up. He's just trying to be faithful to his own job and calling to take Jesus' words and explain them and bring them before you. So the first thing he says is those people who reject Christ will be thrown out. The word is to be excluded, to be barred, to be expelled from the presence of the Lord and the pleasures of heaven. You can check out 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for more. And then he says, outer darkness, it's the place farthest, most removed from the joy of the Lord and the light of the world. A place without the way, the truth, and the life, because in darkness you can't see the way. In darkness you don't have truth, and in darkness you can't have life. So it's the furthest away from that. How sad. And one writer said, well, they prefer darkness to light in life. And that which you prefer in life, spiritually speaking, is what you inherit in the world to come. And then he says weeping, remorse, sadness, regret. <laughs> well, that's remorse, sadness, and regret. That, that's a gift to us in life. It helps us turn. But once you're over the threshold uh, into eternity, it's no gift. But it's a consequence of knowing this didn't have to be the case. Gnashing of teeth talks about pain, misery, anger, distress. The greatest thing of all is that it didn't have to be that way, and it was so, so, so easy. So, so, so easy. Uh, just uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, just to change a heart, that's all repentance means. Crying out, so simple. A change of heart, a cry for help. That's the very thing that got me out of darkness into the kingdom of God was Jesus, really, I believe, the Holy Spirit asking me a question. I thought I was losing my mind there in a, in a nightclub. All I could hear in my head was, why will you go to hell when you don't have to? Over and over again. I don't remember. I had to be escorted from the premises because all I could do was keep saying that out loud until I came to outside. And then I really didn't have an answer to that perfectly good question. I started to ask myself, why would I go to hell when I don't have to? And so I thought, you know what? No pleasure, no 19-year-old pleasure is worth losing my soul over. And so in that moment, I gave my life to Christ because of this issue here that Jesus says, look, just going to be real with you. It's paradise or the other alternative. And uh, that is a permanent reality. And so God doesn't send anyone to hell who hasn't already chosen to go by rejecting the Holy Spirit's prompting and Christ and the word and all of that. Someone said to me once, I'd rather reign in hell than serve your God in heaven. And uh, that's just grievous, huh? I mean, it can be arranged, but at the tears of God, 
because God our Savior wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Hell suggests three things, three sentences. Number one, life as a spiritual being is more serious than any one of us realizes. Number two, God is more holy than any of us can imagine. And number three, sin against God is more evil and deserving of punishment than any one of us could ever fathom. And that Jesus, who is God in a body, would lay himself down and let them strip him and beat him and pluck his beard out and spit in his face without a response except to die willingly on that cross speaks of God's ferocious love and will that nobody ever perish and experience that at all. So when somebody says, how could a God of love have this as an alternative for people? I say, you want to talk about a God of love? Look at Jesus who is God in a body on a cross with his hands out as if saying, no, don't do it. Don't go there. That's the God of love that I wonder about. And so the moral of the story is Jesus saying some will be commended by God and some at the end will be condemned and it all hinges on your faith in Christ. Now as for the, the centurion, he's got a happy ending to the story. A surprise waits for him at home and I imagine the second Jesus says, go, you got it, done and done. I can imagine life just came back to him. He's like, oh man. And he just can't wait to, he's, I just see his legs spinning like in a cartoon, going down there and busting through the door, going through there. But he already knows halfway up the, the drive, doesn't he? He already knows because you can hear the happy voices and the neighbors being called over at this miraculous what. He just turns and says he's feeling better. He sits up. And boom, and so there's that embrace. They call for the musicians. They, they send for the fatted calf. There's going to be a big party, a big feast, which got me thinking. The surprise that was awaiting the centurion is the surprise that awaits all who have the faith of this centurion. Thus, when we go home to the father's house, who are we going to see there? our loved ones who he raised from the dead and we're going to have a joyous celebration together at the table with the likes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Roman centurion and you and me and your mom and your dad in Christ. In Christ. Let's pray. God, we're glad to be included in your plan and having the, the wonder of your grace to not resist you, but to submit and surrender our lives to, to come to have life. Lord, uh, many of us in the room were unlikely candidates for this faith. And uh, it's amazing who you call and who surrenders to that call. God, help us to continue to have faith like that that can amaze you 
and put a smile on your face. Thank you for all the lessons that are here, all the ways you challenged us uh, this morning by your word. Give us the grace to rise to the occasion and walk worthy of such great a salvation and such great a Lord as you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.